I'm Shannon Torrance, and this is Magic is Real. Today, my interview is with the lovely Rob Gentile. Rob is the author of a new book called Quarks of Light. Quarks of Light is a beautiful memoir. It's the story about how Rob, who's a heart transplant recipient, had a near-death experience and crossed over to the other side, and how when he returned, he had a profound change in perspective. If you like this video, please like, subscribe, and don't forget to share with your friends. Thank you. Now here's my conversation with Rob Gentile. Thank you so much for tuning in to Magic is Real. This is Shannon Torrance. And today I have with me Rob Gentile. Rob is the author of this book that I just finished called Quarks of Light. Um, I read this book in three days. It's beautiful. It's about his near-death experience and what it taught him, how it changed him, what he's learned. And I'm really honored to um, have this conversation with him and share it with you. So hello, Rob. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our talk. Me too. So Rob, before we launch into what actually happened to you, I'd love to know a little bit about you. Who are you? Where do you come from? What was your background um, and your, your life situation? And also what was your what was your awareness of spirituality before you had a near-death experience? What was your um, familiarity with spirituality? Sure. Great question. So uh, I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, actually. I live in North Carolina now. My parents were Italian immigrants. And uh, my father, when he came to this country, went directly into a steel mill right outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I'm the uh, youngest, the youngest of four boys. My father was killed in the steel mill when I was five years old in an industrial accident. And my mother was obviously widowed and had, had to raise the four of us on her own. But it's interesting because all of us had a, a stint in the steel mill. I ended up working in the steel mill uh, about two departments down from where my father uh, was killed in the accident, ironically. But, and I was the only one out of the, out of the brothers that stayed in the steel business. So my whole career has been in the steel industry. I'm a sales engineer for a steel company. I travel pretty extensively throughout North America. And in regards to my spirituality before I had my near-death experience, so I was raised in a, a Catholic home. My mother was um, a devout Catholic. And, you know, the Catholic faith, it was, uh, it was good to me. It gave me a good foundation, but I had a lot of questions and I never really had a very close relationship with God. It was more of, uh, as a Catholic, I saw it as like an insurance policy and that, hey, you know, if I made a mistake or I did something under all these, you know, rules that, uh, and I died, it was, it was kind of like my ticket to heaven. So it was a very immature kind of uh, relationship. Uh, with with the, the creator, but that's where uh, it all started for me. And that's my, my background. Okay. Now cutting to your adulthood, um, I know that you get married and you have a daughter and tell me a little bit about your family and what that looked like, um, your family structure, what you, um, how you live day to day before your near-death experience. So my daughter was born in, in Nashville, Tennessee in about at 18 months we noticed that something was changing in Maria. Um, all of a sudden she started to have these episodes where she would just scream out and start passing whole foods and she would bang her head on the floor. Actually had to shave her head because she was ripping her hair out in pain. We took her everywhere. Nobody could figure it out at the time. We took her to the best doctors at Vanderbilt. Um, so there was a lot of uh, trauma around that period of time in our life at, at, at 18 months old. So we traveled throughout the country to try to figure out what was wrong. And as Maria grew older, it was at about, I think she was around uh, three years old. My wife and I went to the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential in Philadelphia, where there was a program, they thought she was brain injured, and there was a program to like help recover the child. And it was by the Glenn Doman Institute. And Glenn Doman was really famous. He was actually famous for uh, John, John F. Kennedy's father after his stroke went there and they recovered him. 
So it was kind of like the last stop, the last hope. So we went and I took actually an 18 month sabbatical from my job and worked this home-based program and Maria wasn't getting any better. So from there, we ended up going to my company transfer me to Los Angeles. There was a team of doctors there that thought they can help her. They thought it was a virus in the brain. Nobody could really figure it out. We went everywhere, tried to figure it out. Finally, in LA, we tried, um, we tried a lot of things. That's where I really, I really fell into the darkness because um, traditional medicine had failed me, my, re my relationship, my religion, my relationship with God, whatever you want to call it at that time, failed me. Um, everything failed. And we found out after we came back to North Carolina, where my wife is, is originally from, we found out through a series of testing that it was actually Rett syndrome, which is a very rare neurological disease that affects mostly girls, it pretty much only strikes girls. And it has to do with a master gene in the brain that girls have two of them, the MECP2 gene. One expresses as normal, one is abnormal. And that's why you only see it in girls because uh, boys have only one of those genes. So they actually die in utero. But girls are cursed with having the abnormal gene express. So when we found out it was Rett syndrome, there's no cure for Rett syndrome. Um, we decided to just make her life as comfortable as possible, keep trying all kinds of therapies to mitigate the various symptoms, seizures, things like that. Uh, and, but what unfolded through the years has been you know, a, lot of, a lot of trauma, a lot of turmoil, of, um, living in and out of hospitals for months at a time. So that was uh, the background story. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's important information. I had heard of Rett syndrome, but didn't know um, you know, all the, the mechanics of it and sort of how it comes about. So you're also educating people about this, which I think is important. Um, so you're, so at this point, um, I know that um, you're, you're middle-aged when this happens. What leads you to becoming ill and how does it lead you into the big, you know, the big near-death experience? So what happened was, and I've always been uh, an exerciser, I've always taken care of myself. I was big in the martial arts when I was young. And I, would, I was cycling through like an army of doctors for two years because they couldn't figure out, I had this pain that was in my neck and it would run, run across my chest. Sometimes it would go down my arms, but um, I had all the testing done, you know, for my heart stress tests. So went everywhere, I saw all these cardiologists and they said, your heart is fine. There's nothing wrong with you. So through a series of all these diagnoses, it was determined that I had some bone spurs on my neck from sports injuries. So uh, interestingly, there's a doctor back in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. He's a Korean doctor and he's famous for removing bone spurs but in a new way of going through the front of the neck instead of going to the back where they you know, cut, your, cut the back of your neck open and they operate on your discs and you're in pain for the rest of your life. So this new technique, he cuts you and moves your esophagus aside and he goes in and he drills out these spurs. And it's really kind of like a one day, you only have to stay in the hospital one night for this surgery. So I went to Pittsburgh at age 56. I had this done, it relieved my pain. Uh, and four days later, in my bed back home in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I now reside, I had a massive heart attack. Wow. Now, the first time that this happened, I've read the book, so I, I know there are two, there are sort of two chapters to this. Um, what happened the first time that you had a heart attack at home? So what happened was, is that I had this massive heart attack. It was about 11 o'clock at night. My wife didn't know what was going on. I don't remember anything. She thought it was Maria actually, because Maria would have seizures in the middle of the night. So she got out of bed, she ran down the hall to see if it was Maria. She realized it wasn't, you know, you're half asleep, you're kind of running around figuring out what was going on. She comes back into the room and it's me flopping around in the bed screaming in pain. So she calls the ambulance. They rush me to the hospital, which thank goodness is only three miles from my house. And I get into the hospital they realize I'm having a heart attack, but they gave me some blood thinners, a bunch of medicines to stabilize me. 
And I was laying on the gurney. They put me in a room. They stabilized me. I was laying on a gurney. There's a nurse in there, my wife in there. And all of a sudden, and I don't remember anything, but I sprang forward on the gurney like somebody grabbed my shirt and just pulled me forward to get my attention. And my eyes opened up wide and I screamed out the nickname of my brother-in-law. His name is Frosty. And I screamed out his name and closed my eyes and just fell backwards and collapsed onto the gurney. The heart monitor flatlined, code blue rang out throughout the hospital and in rushed a team of doctors to start to work on me. Wow, now one question I had as I was reading the book, you did describe that scene. Do you have any recollection of what was going on in your mind? And you may have said this, but I didn't, I wasn't quite sure. Were you at all, do you remember um, I know that you talk about having an awareness of Frosty. Um, you talk about how it wasn't so much that he, you saw him in front of you as you felt him and heard him. So right. can you describe sort of what that, do you remember it more as a memory? Um, how do I explain that? Do you remember it more as sort of a feeling or is it more of a memory? Like you woke up and remember that, that um, what that feeling was like. It's, I, it's hard to explain because I think it was hard to explain for you because it was more of a telepathic knowing than um, a very literal conversation that you had with him. Well, it was both. It was not only a strong memory and a feeling and a knowing, just this knowing that um, he spoke to me in that place. Now, what's, what's interesting, and I tried to, to articulate this in the book as best I can, but when something like that happens, you know, I had no idea until I came out of my coma because what happened after that, so I flatlined, the doctors rush in, they begin to work on me and I was, I was flatlined for 20 minutes. They could, not get a, they could not bring me back, they could not get a pulse. They did everything they could, you know, epinephrine in the heart, paddling, all that they could. Finally, you know, I had one, one woman, the on-call doctor who is a very good friend of mine now continued to work on me, refused to, to give up. And she was able to obtain a slight pulse while the cardiologist on call that night was in route. So when, when he arrived, he did a catheterization and they found the blockage in my Widowmaker and he put two stints in, but deep damage had already been done to my heart. They had to intubate me and I slipped into a four day coma. So it was Shannon, when I came out of that four day coma, I immediately had an awareness that I had this conversation with Frosty and my wife was the first one to walk in the room. And she said that uh, I was talking like a child, you know, very, very high pitched and kind of innocent and like, you have to believe me, you have to believe me, your brother Frosty came to me. And she said, no, I believe you. She said, because you're not, you, you don't know what happened. She said, right before you flatlined, you sprang forward on the gurney and you screamed out his name. And I said, oh my God then it was him. And she said, tell me exactly what, it, what did he say to you? And I said, he said, I made a big mess out of things. You have to go back and help clean things up, but tell my parents I'm in a good place. And, you know, Shannon, that was the first time in my life, really, in my adult life that kind of like Pandora's box opened. And I realized having been raised Catholic, Suicide was the ultimate mortal sin. If you committed suicide, you were condemned to hell. You know, no past, no go, no coming back. So when he said to me, you know, I'm in a good place, I really started considering other possibilities that maybe these man-made laws, you know, aren't exactly the truth. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think that's what's so beautiful about having these testimonies is to it's, yeah. it's very hopeful and it, and it does, um, it does help to bring a lot of peace to people who have lost loved ones, especially, you know, in, in circumstances like that, where people wonder, is my loved one in heaven or the other side? Are they in hell? Are they suffering? And I think it's important to know that, you know, they're, they're at peace, um, especially after whatever difficulty led them to that place. So, um, now, so then, then I know after this, you have, I mean, you've just really been through the ringer. Um, you know, you really talk about, I said this to you before the cameras are rolling, but seeing you looking so vibrant and young and, and healthy is just brings me so much joy because reading this book, I'm, 
about what you went through. And, you know, I'll, I'm recommending that people read the book. So I want them to know that they can find out all the details there, but you really talk about being very, you could barely walk. I mean, you could barely do anything. You, you were really a shell um, and, and really very sick. So what happened next? And that kind of took you to your next chapter of, of your near-death experience. So after that near-death experience, uh, when I, before they released me from the hospital, you know, when I came out of coma, I was told my heart was completely destroyed, of course. And they put a, interestingly enough, they put a port in my chest to drip medicine on my heart. And the doctor described it as kind of like STP for the heart. Mm -hmm. The problem with it though, with the medicine is that it makes the heart beat faster, but it also starts the clock ticking because it wears the heart out. So right. what was left of my heart was on its way out. So it's like this race against time. So I had this pack, like a battery pack on my left shoulder with this thing <laughs> pumping medicine in, onto my heart every 60 seconds. And then they strapped me in this defibrillator vest, looked kind of like a bulletproof vest that was also run by a battery pack. And that battery pack was slung over my right shoulder. And that vest was to shock me back to life every time I had an event, uh, which in itself, my chest was already sore from being paddled and you know, needles stuck into my heart. So when I was released from the hospital, uh, the, the chapter that I entitled is Seeking a New Heart. So I had to begin to look for a new heart. And I went all, all over the place to try to find a heart. And I learned all the difficulties about the world of organ transplant because particularly hearts, you know, they're in really short supply and most people don't get a heart. So I was really, um, I was really lucky to have an owner of the steel company that I work for who is uh, a philanthropist. And I never knew this, that he sits on the board of directors at the University of Chicago Medicine. And that's the only way that I got my heart. Uh, he helped me to get up there and I flew to Chicago with my wife and uh, we started the process of the pre-testing for heart transplant. So that was another, this, this whole journey was like, you know, from, from heart attack to transplant was six months. And in between, of course, I just kept on getting weaker and weaker and sicker and sicker and atrophying. My body was atrophying. All right. So I, I arrive at Chicago, at the University of Chicago Medical Center, and uh, I'm about half dead. And they tell me that the only way that I could stay alive until a donor heart arrives, and no one knows when a donor heart is going to arrive, is that they've been working on this experimental heart pump for years. So the head surgeon who has transplanted like 1500 people, he's a legend, this Indian man who I absolutely love. He comes to me and he says, look, Rob, I've been working on this experimental heart pump. And he said, I don't have to open your heart up anymore with this thing. He said, I'm just gonna make a, a small slit in your chest and I'll fish this little balloon down through the middle of the heart and then these wires will come out of your body on the left side and it will attach to this pump, which is about the size of a lunchbox. And the cool thing about it is you can, you know, you can walk around and, and not atrophy anymore and stay healthy until your donor heart arrives. And I said, wow, doc, that's really cool. How many people have had this thing? And he said, well, that's just it. We've, we've only tried this thing out on cows. <laughs> Fantastic. And I said, cows? And he said, yeah, well, a couple of pigs too, you know? And I said, oh, how comforting. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but seriously, I said, if this thing works, how many people could it help? And he said, well, that's just it. I know it'll work and we're gonna change the history of cardiac care together because patients like you will be able to stay home. They'll be able to stay home and wait for a heart instead of the hospital and exercise, be with their families. And I said, where do I sign? So I had the, uh, the heart pump, it's called the new pulse actually, put in me. And that was a fun experience because when I was getting wheeled into surgery, I didn't realize that it was a surgical theater, not a surgical suite. So all these doctors, Shannon, were Skyped in on these screens from all around the world. And there were doctors upstairs with their nose, you know, pressed against the, the windows watching this thing. And it was just a crazy 
it was a crazy experience. One of my favorite um, physician's assistants, when they wheeled me in, I said, I noticed his face behind his mask. And I said, Tim, do me a favor. I didn't realize that, you know, the whole world was going to see me. <laughs> so um, before, you know, you uh, shave my chest and do all that stuff, I said, do you mind knocking me out? And he said, okay, let's count the three together. One, two. And of course I was gone, you know, right. That did me. Uh, but so I had the new pulse in for three weeks, which gave them enough data to go ahead with the FDA trials, the human clinical trials. And now I forget how many hospitals it's in and how many patients have, uh, have been, you know, installed with the new pulse. So it's been an incredible, incredible thing. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And so at this point, okay, great. You've, you, you've had this, um, this, thing installed, <laughs> this lunchbox attached to your body. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, uh, what, I don't want to say what goes wrong because it doesn't all go wrong. It actually goes pretty right. Um, but what leads to you being able to visit the other side from this point? Well, several things, a lot did go wrong actually. And it wasn't the heart pump's fault. It's just yeah. that after being in the hospital for so long, I'm about 174 pounds. I got down to, you know, under 138. I was just a skeleton and my heart was getting weaker all the time. Even with the, you know, the new pulse pumping my heart, you're still pumping, you know, something that really isn't functional anymore. So it's barely, and I had the medicine dripping on my heart, it's barely pumping enough blood through my body. Plus they found some other medical issues, which I think I'll save for the book. Yeah. Um, and then something very peculiar happened and I call it the darkness. There's a chapter in the book called the darkness. And I think Shannon, this is a very interesting thing that we all have to be aware of because when we get into these weakened states, whether it's through something as dramatic as I went through, or even when the vicissitudes of life attack us and we turn to vices or we turn to other things that kind of like dim down our light and, you know, lead us into the darkness, things begin to attack you. You, you kind of like begin to attract more of the same. And you, all these feelings of unworthiness and all the mistakes you've made in your life. And it's like the darkness pulls out all the stops to keep crushing your spirit until you get to the point where you, you, don't, you don't even know who you are anymore. And I found myself in that state. I went through this really dark night of the soul because um, my heart had pretty much given out. They had come to me and said, look, we have a heart that's coming available shortly, but it's really too small for your body. You might get five years out of it. I mean, everything you can possibly have, you know, happened, went wrong. I had gotten pneumonia. Um, I had, a, I had a, uh, a tube in my side draining out my lung. Uh, I went through this, you know, period of like a, a two weeks. They thought I had an infection in my body. They couldn't figure it out. High fever, all that stuff. So that night I finally just gave myself up and I just cried out in my hospital room, do with me what you will. And curiously, it was in that moment that I had my second and most profound near-death experience. Yeah, actually, that part of the book really resonated with me where you talked about the darkness perpetuating more darkness. I actually did flash back to my darkest time as I was reading the book and thought that is so apt because I feel now that I'm so full of, I'm just so grateful and have and at peace now and so much better to handle the ups and downs of life. But there was a time where, you know, as a really an acting out addict, I was just Oh, just tumbling down this well of despair. And it really dragged me down into, I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. I can't handle this anymore. And so much of that darkness, I'm always so grateful now that I look back and say, thank God you stuck it out because there was so much more beauty to come. But I loved just that, that chapter really resonated with me. And I think it will resonate with a lot of people because I think we all have dark nights of the soul for whether it's because of something as, you know, really confronting as you were going through. I mean, this is your life. Your life is at stake. 
And, you know, you, you're in, in danger of what happens, you know, my daughter needs me, my wife needs me. Um, and, and what have I done? You know? And so I think that really will resonate with a lot of people, I think, but, um, go on and, and uh, explain then what happens, where do you go? Well, and you know, it's uh, curious because it took me three years to write the book. And this is actually the shortest chapter in the book mm -hmm. into the ethereal is what I called it. And it was, uh, it, it, I struggled with it for so long and I actually consulted many, many people about this. And because there's no really, really no language for, for these type of experiences. And in my experience, and I know that everybody has a different experience, there was no language in that place either because communication is kind of felt and absorbed. It's thought about instantly and you understand what's happening in that place, but you don't hear a voice. Um, it's like, you know, telepathy and synchronicity at the same time. It was, very, it was a very curious thing that, that happened to me in that place. But what happened, Shannon, is that after I just relinquished my soul, as it were, I, was, I found myself standing in the middle of nowhere, kind of like in this vacuum of sorts. I found myself standing in this timeless place where it just seemed like it was this infinite expanse and all knowledge seemed to be downloaded in like a millisecond. It was like any question that I ever had was already answered. All I had to do was observe and I just had to think about what I wanted to know and it was answered. It's hard to explain. Mm -hmm. And I could see myself down in my bed with the heart pump in my atrophied body. I was as green as the hospital gown I was wearing, you know, just barely alive. And at the same time, I could see myself in that space, standing in the middle of nowhere, healthy, with nothing attached to me. It was, um, it was almost as if, and the, the, the expanse was infinite. And it was almost as if I was made of sand and someone picked up the grains of my being and just threw them into a strong wind and scattered me across this infinite timeless universe. It was so beautiful, so peaceful. And you were just connect I was connected to, to, to all of it without words. And it's hard for me to, um, to articulate the peace and love in that place that I felt. And it's a place that I never wanted to leave. Uh, and from there, I had a couple of events, and I don't know how many of those you want me to talk about because I don't want to. I don't want to be a spoiler. Yeah, I was going to say tell as much as you feel comfortable because I still, you know, obviously want people to read the book. And um, yeah. I would love, but what I would love, and I know you'll say it, but what I would love to hear about is the what the quarks of light are. Um, what because and I'll and I want to show the picture after you explain it as well. Awesome. Okay, let's talk about that. Because I had a few more very interesting experiences in that place before I saw and became part of this kind of interactive web. And it showed me how we were all connected. And the best way that I can explain this web is that it was made of trillions and trillions of neurons. That's the only way that I can articulate what the web looked like. And we all know from science class what a neuron looks like. It has a nucleus inside of it and it has these tentacles that you know, are interwoven with one another, just like we see pictures of the brain. And inside each one of those nucleuses was a spark of light or what I call a quark of light. Because I came to understand after I started researching this, after my near-death experience, I was released from the hospital and I began to realize what quarks are. And quarks are the smallest building blocks of matter that everything is made out of. And curiously, these quarks are made of light. All matter is made of light when you look at it at a subatomic level. So this web of lights, it looked like it was trillions and trillions and trillions of lights, this beautiful tapestry hanging on the ceiling of the universe. And that's why you see that on the cover. Yeah, I was about to, I actually was curious about how you found, a, I mean, how you were able to create a rendering of that or how your artist was able to create a rendering of that. Um, it's really, I, it, I love it because it's not, 
I've listened to as many near-death experiences as I can get my hands on. And this is not, obviously you're not the only person who has described this exact thing. Wow. Um, I've, I, I don't remember who it was, but I know that I've heard several people say that what they could see when they, whatever we're viewing was that these blobs of lights and that those blobs of lights are, are us and they're all interconnected like a web and they are all part of God, which is the, the light that we all come from. And, yeah. um, I, I'm getting such chills when I'm talking about it. Cause it's like the, the most beautiful thing. And I actually found, I also wanted to mention that at the end of your book, it just gets more and more interesting because you actually talk about some of the science of, um, how the brain and the heart work, but also how it's all interconnected. And I really found it interesting. There's one part where you mention this is the least scientific explanation, but you say that they have found that when a um, an egg is fertilized successfully, there is a spark of light. Yes, that happens, and that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. That's one of you know, if if I didn't already love the book enough just for that one speck of knowledge, I was that's so cool. That's so cool. Yes, that was that was discovered by um, Teresa Woodworth, who's a, a researcher at uh, Northwestern University in Chicago. They first saw that spark in in animals, but then the more they researched it, and the you know the better technology became when they saw it in humans. I mean, it was like a total freakout, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how I, you know, when when I found those things out, I put all this together. That yes. that's what. I saw in each one of those little nucleuses that spark of light represented a life. Mm -hmm. And what's curious about that cover, I want to backtrack because you asked me about that, which one of these coincidences, and by the way, I no longer believe in coincidences. I don't either. Coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. Yep. But that cover, my publisher uses a a design um, tool called 99designs. I'm sure a lot of artists are familiar with it. So 99designs is this consortium of artists all over the world. And you give them like a summary of your book and you tell them what it is that you're looking for, the best way you can describe it. And then they start to compete to provide the best cover. And it's it's a three week contest. And there were so many artists interested in this topic that uh, my publisher said he'd never seen so so many artists from all over the world participate in it. And what's even more curious about this, Shannon, so in the end, what we ended up going with, this particular artist that made that cover, that's an original design, a 3D design that he did. He happens to live in Rome, Italy. uh, And he lives and was born in the same province that my parents were born in. Oh, wow. I love it. <laughs> That's so it cool. Kind of cra- one of those crazy things. I mean, he actually had to have a translator translate my synopsis, uh, and and he you know worked on it from there. And every time I made a comment, you know, like you're getting close, or try to change this throughout the con- the three week contest, you know, he'd have to have somebody translate him for that. But that's how the cover was created. Uh, thank you for answering that question. That I always want to know things like that. So you're in this vast space. Um, you're observing it's uh, you know, and, and you're just existing. It's, it sounds like you're just being, um, what draws you back into your body? Well, I, I hope I get through this without breaking down. So what happened was, is that, um, I, of course, my, my daughter is nonverbal. She can't walk, can't feed herself. She's total care. And, you know, these past 20, 25 years, I've grappled with the suffering and I've grappled with all of these, all these things that most parents do that have a child like this. But what happened to me was, is that I saw my daughter Maria perfect and whole and this beautiful light, like no other light I've ever seen emanating from her, emanating from her eyes that I realized in that place that it was the light that animates all life for all of us. It was God's light, God's love and light. And I spoke to her into the vastness and I said to her, Maria, you know, we've taken you everywhere to find a cure. I don't know what to do for you when you're having seizures, how I comfort you. You've never spoken my name, you know, how I'd love to see one time here you say, I love you, daddy. 
And she spoke to me in that unspoken language of the ethereal. And she said, just love me. And when she said, just love me, I heard my own voice echo back to me. I never want to leave this place. And when I said, I never want to leave this place, I found myself back in my hospital bed with the pump pumping my heart and all the IVs in me. Mm-hmm. Wow. I know that just choked me up. Um, Okay. So yeah. And it's funny because when you say, I never want to leave this place, it feels like, you know, you didn't want to leave that space that you were in, but it's also, I didn't want to leave that space of being able to be so connected with your daughter. Um, you know, that in this place of true connectedness with, with Maria and not, and realizing you don't even need words, um, which is the beauty is that you were put back into this broken body, but then now you have this connection that that has deepened so um at so when you returned um obviously you still had some physical recovery but um what how did you feel i know a lot of people say they come back and they're they don't want to be here anymore um now they see what it's like on the other side and it must be a whole complex set of emotions i've also heard people say that um it's just hard because people around you haven't experienced it. They don't know where you've been and you're sort of on this other plane of existence. What was your experience like coming back into the, um, whatever this, I don't want to say reality because I feel like that is actually reality, but into this world. Good point. Yes. Back into the temporal world. So is what I call it, but I, you know, very much like the, the other, the other near death experiences that you've, may have interviewed, I didn't want to be, there are times I must admit, I still don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it weren't for my, my wife and my daughter, you know, I, uh, but I know that I was sent back with a goal to accomplish. One of them was to write this book, get the word out and take care of my family and get them safely to the other side. But I went through that. I had to live near the hospital for a year because you, once you, when you get a heart, they're responsible if you have a rejection infection that first year you're really vulnerable. So you have to live near the hospital. So most of that time I was alone. I mean, I had friends and family and relatives and things come and visit me and my wife came to visit me when she could. But looking back now, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because it was there that I started to, you know, unscramble the pieces to this puzzle and I was able to, to write more and journal and meditate and try to figure out what happened. And it was also there that I realized that I could never get back to that place because I went through this period of, well, I, could, I was convincing myself that through, through meditation, prayer and meditation, that I could reconnect with the ethereal while I was still on earth. And I went through this kind of fantasy honeymoon period mm-hmm. uh, for three months after transplant when I moved into my apartment that I was able to do that. So I went through hours of meditation sometimes trying to get back into that ethereal place and I couldn't. So I I was becoming very depressed. I couldn't watch the news. I I was grappling with the incongruency between what was happening here, all the violence and hatred and and what was going on in the ethereal, which was total peace and, and oneness and unity and connectedness. And that was a very difficult, and, and again, I still grapple with it now, but I realize too that there are things that have to be done here and what we do here matters and that I need to finish and fulfill my mission and purpose. You know, that's so beautifully said. And in fact, when I read that part of your book, I for a second got depressed, <laughs> not because you made me depressed, but because I often, you know, as I've become more spiritual, I feel lighter and lighter and then just takes what I don't watch the news anymore. I just can't do it. Um, or I even like, a, a our neighborhood cat killed one of my birds outside the other day. And I haven't, I've been for days, like, darn it. I just can't get over it. Like I know the birds in a better place, but why did that have to happen? And, you know, I feed the birds on this little table and the cat just came I, I made a safe place for the birds and this cat climbed up and grabbed the bird. And I, I still have so much, like, I just feel so guilty about it. I have two cats. I love cats. I get it. But um, I'm also, you know, it's that kind of thing where you think, okay, I have to be back grounded on earth where, okay, it's not always going to be 
daisies, roses, and butterflies. It's going to be, there are going to be things that are painful to hear about, to experience. And even not having been where you were, I suddenly was like, man, this is such a bummer. It, just thinking about all the the terrible things that happen in the world and the, the division and, and things like that. So I can really understand that must have, even just for me, trying to be in a Zen place, I was like, that's really harshing my mellow. And I imagine, you know, having actually, I don't know if you would call it died, but, you know, having actually visited the other side and seen how peaceful it is, it must be so hard to come back. But what did happen was you had such beautiful revelations. So I would love to hear about that. Now you mentioned, obviously, your interaction with Maria in that, um, in that other state how you've, you've been able to articulate it so beautifully. What has that taught you about, um, Maria's challenges, um, and what she's experiencing and why, and I, and, um, and also how do you see everything differently now? Well, it's a mouthful because, um, well, first of all, let me say that I realize now that Maria, while she still suffers in her body is perfect in spirit. And that should give everybody some solace because even though it's very difficult for us to, to see that when someone is suffering and to understand that, it's important to understand that we're spiritual beings first, having a human experience. And while pain is real and suffering is real and all those things are very real, we do have to remember that, again, in the spirit, there is no suffering. But we do have a responsibility to try to minimize that suffering the, the best we can while we're here on earth. And that's why I say that everything we do matters because I came to understand that, you know, the web and the ethereal is just a reflection of the actions and the things that we do here on earth. And those two are always communicating and those two are always interwoven with one another. It's the only way it can be. We're spiritual beings living inside these fragile clay vessels and we have to understand that, number one, we're called to take care of these, these vessels because they house our spirit. And we have to understand that the web and the ethereal is kind of like it represents the, the light and dark struggles of every age of humanity going through time. Everybody struggles with this, with this light and dark and trying to figure out you know, how to deal with it. So I came to understand that Maria is, and, and I, for me, I know, and that's why I dedicated the book to her. It was really Maria that proved to me that God exists. Because Maria showed me through her own suffering and adversity that it's in caring for one another. It's in serving one another that we really become more spiritual and closer to God. And this is where we have the opportunity to face adversity with that kind of confidence and knowledge and not let it scare us. Because adversity, I learned, is also an opportunity for us to develop a closer relationship with God and to know that, hey, we can only control so much. Believe me, I went through that period for years and years and years. I'm a recovering perfectionist, you know, and I thought that it was me who could cure my daughter. It, that responsibility was on me. So my wife and I, you know, we lost everything. We spent our, our retirement. We did everything, taking her all over North America, looking for a cure, doing all these things. When really, in the end, we don't control anything. We control our actions, but we don't control the outcome. And this is where things get slippery. And, you know, you have to be careful not to allow yourself to let the ego get in the way and think you can fix everything because we can't, you know, we're, we're only human, we can only do so much. So Maria and children like her have taught me what it means to be human really. And they've, they've shown me that it's through their pure love energy. They come into this world with things to teach us. They're not capable of, of hatred or judgment. They, they are incapable of ulterior motives. There are these perfect, beautiful visions of what God probably looks like, just love energy and forgiveness. And that's what, that's what Maria taught me. And one of the biggest lessons I learned through her on how to deal with adversity and the everyday vicissitudes of life. You couldn't have said that any more eloquently. That was beautiful. 
And you touched on it, but if you were to tell somebody who's, if you were to tell anybody um, living in this world, who's never had the experience that you've had, how can we live more soul-centered lives that are more in alignment with our higher selves um, while still, and, and while still remaining um, present in this moment? I, you know, I, I think doing a lot of spiritual exploration myself and spending a lot of time meditating and doing yoga and, and doing um, mediumship readings and that sort of thing. I do often have to remind myself live in, but you're here to live here. You're here to live in the moment. And, and I know that, um, whatever, you know, God, whatever you call it wants us to experience life, to, to continue grow and not sort of be just off in la la land in the, and it's not la la land, but you know, off in the spirit world all the time, we need to be here, but what can we do to help ourselves, um, evolve not just as individuals, but as, as a whole, as a collective? Mm. That's a great question. And I think that the number one thing that we, we have to, to, to try to do, and it takes a while to get there. Look, I had to die at age 56 to figure this out, right? <laughs> so, but number one, we have to understand that we all come here with a purpose, a special gift that we need to express. And the way that we learn to express that is to be authentic. That's the number one thing that we have to learn to be. And I'm sure Shannon, you have, I know I have, we all do things in our lives sometimes to survive. We do jobs that we don't want to do. Uh, we go through life sometimes kind of numbed down because we've been hurt or whatever those circumstances are. But it's really important for us to understand that we have just as much value as the next person because we come here with a mission we come here with a gift and we have to figure out what that is. And we can figure out what that is by, at least for me, what I do every morning, I don't start my day without uh, a prayer and meditation routine where I kind of surrender myself to divine energy, to God's love and light. I get in that space and I listen more than I do anything else now. Instead of praying with this big long list of what it is that I want and my needs and what they are, I've learned to be quiet and to listen and to act on that when I hear something. You know, Robin Williams, uh, I remember seeing him in an interview one time and he said, you know, you could call it muse, you can call it spirit, you can call it ideas, but he said, you know, they're like butterflies. They land on your shoulder for a second and if you don't grab them and act on them, you know, they, they fly away forever. And we have to learn how to do that so we can be authentic, figure out what our purpose is, and also realize that we're all connected. I realized when I was in that place, and, and I didn't want to talk about this, but I, but I will just for a moment. When I was in that ethereal place and I realized how we were all connected through this beautiful interactive web made of lights, I, I knew while I was there that if I hurt myself, I hurt everything connected to me. But if I loved, the light would spread. So if we can accept one another and not be judgmental and learn how to spread that love and light, you know, that's a really great first step to living a better life and finding our center and also accepting others. Again, so beautifully said. And I know that, you know, when somebody has lost someone close to them, grief is very real. It's, um, and I know that there's nothing you can say to somebody who's lost somebody so dear to them and that grief is, is inevitable and it's okay. And we need to feel it. And we're going to feel the loss, even if we do believe that there's something else on the other side and that we will be reconnected, re reunited with our loved ones in spirit. What would you say to people, um, regarding grief or who are in grief? Obviously, you wouldn't say this to somebody right when they're in the in the midst of it, but just as a general message to, to people regarding grief, um, what message do you have um, just to offer some hope and inspiration um, in re as in regards to um, the loss that we that we do feel, which is very very real. You know, I can't speak for uh, I don't have answers for everyone, but I could speak for myself that. Mm -hmm. Uh, the way I deal with grief and what I learned from my, my experience, uh, having that veil pulled back for a second. Uh, but, you know, we, again, we have to understand that 
we will see our loved ones whole and perfect, just like I saw my daughter Maria. They're, they're, it's, the veil is so thin, and this life is but a blink of an eye. And when I realize that we're spirit first, we're spiritual beings first, and living inside these fragile vessels, then it helped me to deal with my own grief. I've, I've had loss in my life. I've had to deal with and continue to deal with never having a conversation with my daughter. It's like constant grief. You know, I find myself having conversations with her and parroting back my own words as if she's saying them to me. So it's, it's a constant thing. And I realize when I'm in that moment and I find myself going down that slippery slope to stop and try to remember that we're spiritual beings first. That's beautiful. Um, and, in, and obviously 2020 has been a doozy for a lot of people. Um, what would you say about things like that? Um, terrible things happen as we've discussed. We have touched on this. There is, uh, there's just been so much upheaval. There's been a pandemic. There's been political strife. There's been, um, you know, there's violence. There's, there's all kinds of really upsetting things in the world. Um, why do you think, I, I guess, what would you say about why these things need to happen here or why they do happen, but also what's the hope What's the message of hope and inspiration you have around things that happen that are beyond our control, that are very difficult to cope with, um, that are very upsetting to, to witness, even if you're not going through it yourself? Well, I'll never forget when uh, I got to the University of Chicago Medicine and I met uh, Dr. Juvenandon, the, the heart surgeon. And he is a very, very spiritual human being. And as a matter of fact, Having, having transplanted over 1,500 people, including his own wife, I found out, which is very curious, is that we got into a spiritual discussion. And later I found these things out about him. But when I first met him, he sat down beside me and he didn't even introduce himself, didn't ask me my name. He just sat down and he asked me a very pointed question, which I found interesting at the time. I'm half dead. And he said, so what have you learned from your heart attack? And I said, well, what do you mean? What have I learned from my heart attack? And he said, I think, I think you know what, what I mean, don't you? And I thought about it for a second. And I said, I do know what you mean. I can't control anything. And he said, that's right. Keep that in mind because I can't either. And I came to find out later that he goes to India once a year and he operates and teaches other physicians in a clinic that's free for Indians to come in, in his hometown that he was born in. And he happened to be friends with, uh, there's a holy man in India by the name of Sai Baba. And it's kind of curious because Sai Baba answered some of these questions probably more eloquently than, than I can because I was recently speaking with Dr. Juvenandan about this very subject. And the way Sai Baba answered these questions is, in four or five pillars, these tenets that I now have in the back of my mind that I, I really love. First of all, he said, we control our actions, but God controls the outcome. So every day we have to do the best we can and leave the rest to God. Secondly, hands that serve are holier than lips that pray. So in serving others, we can get out there even when tragedy happens and try to make the best of it by helping as many people as we can. Third, it helps us demolish the ego. Fourth, he said, universality, that everything happens for a reason. We can't see it right now. You know, I, I said to myself, when, when Maria became diagnosed with Rett syndrome and I almost lost her multiple times, you know, I developed a hatred for God, actually. I had a really difficult time, went through a really bad, uh, dark night of the soul with my relationship with God, blamed God for everything. And now I realize that it was through that experience that I was introduced to God and how adversity gives us the opportunity to develop that relationship. So universality is kind of like the same thing, that all things happen for a reason. We just don't understand them sometimes. When I was going through that hell, I didn't understand what was happening to me. 
but I was being peeled back like an onion, you know, to get to the core of really who I am, my real identity, which our real identity comes from God. So these tragedies, if we, if we look at them in, in the right perspective, you know, they, they remind us of who we are and we get back to this place of authenticity and identity, which gives us the strength to deal with these things. And the last pillar of, um, of Sai Baba's philosophy is that everybody is an instrument of God. And that's a really important thing to understand because it goes back to this whole thing that I talk about in the book that everyone has value, everyone has the right to live, everyone comes here with a special message and a purpose. And it's up to us to get that accomplished before we leave. Because if we don't, I believe when we get to the ethereal, our light might not be as bright as some of the others, you know? Mm -hmm. Those were kind of like the dark parts of the web that I saw. And the reason why I think that's important is because I think that I don't, I no longer believe in a hell. I do believe in different levels of heaven. And I believe it depends on how bright your light is, is how close you get to that source, you know, that divine source. Um, so that's how I kind of in a nutshell, and I know it's a long way to answer your question, but, but see how maybe we can deal with uh, tragic events better and suffering and some of the things that are beyond our control. Wow, I really appreciate your interpretation. Great, there's a horn honking outside. Um, I'm just gonna wait for a second to see if that stops and then we'll pick up in this. And if it doesn't, okay, it stopped. Um, I really appreciate your your explanation. I mean, that that whole, that, that makes so much sense to me. And also we've been talking a lot on this show about that, about different um, belief systems, about heaven, hell, and levels. And I really have had been having these discussions a lot. And I, I'm, it, it's uh, sort of validating to hear your perspective too, having seen what you saw. Obviously some people see different things and have different ideas, but, um, and I think they're all valid, but I do definitely feel that too. I don't believe in hell, but I believe in different levels and darker energies. Um, and I've mentioned in my last interview, you know, I'm just finishing up uh, a book about Ted Bundy, for example, not to bring something so dark into this beautiful conversation, but the thing is that there are going to be people that are sick and that are going to not make the choice to be close to God. And, 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 you know, uh, it's because they're sick. It's, it's, it's not, I don't, I think to some degree, there's also, we have to consider that it's, it's a mental illness. And I don't mean that they're just choosing to, to do these horrible things all the time, but they do have a choice. You know, they do have a choice whether to act on those, those impulses. So I always wonder, you know, people get very upset when I'll say, I don't believe they go to hell. Um, it's because you want that, that, person to be punished, but it isn't that it's just that they're not going to be close to God. They're going to be in a different, a different level of existence until they, I don't know, re reincarnate, learn. I don't know how it works. Um, I'm not until I get there, I won't know, but maybe they need to evolve more on the other side. Uh, maybe they won't evolve. Maybe they'll stay stuck in the, in the muck, but I, but I love the idea of that too. And I think it really does make a lot of sense that um, it's most of us, will go and be light. And, and I love the idea too, that we can still, be, we can be light even now. And that by practicing acts of service and kindness um, and connecting with others, that's how we, that's how we find our light in this world and then carry that over to the other side. So um, I would just love to hear, I know some things are in the works and you're not going to reveal them yet, but um, now that you're back um, and I'm, and again, so happy to see you healthy and thriving. Um, I, I feel like one of those interviews of what's next for Rob Gentile, but I do want to know what, what's next on your, um, what do you, what do you still hope to accomplish? Well, I definitely, you know, first of all, the number one goal is to spread as much love and light as I can while I'm here. And part of the reason why I wrote the book was also to show the world that children like my daughter have so much value and they're teachers and we should think about that and act differently the next time we see someone who is disabled or has special needs things that we don't understand because believe me when I tell you, they're still very wise and very alive in the spirit and they know exactly what's going on. 
all the time. And I do have a, I have another book that uh, I want to start that's in the works. We'll, we'll talk about that another, another time. If you mm -hmm. ever have me back on your show, I would love to that's, that's in the works. And I've got a couple of other things that I'm not ready to talk about yet, but just know that that is my goal. I'm going to be out here spreading as much light as I can, telling my story, sharing my story. And hopefully we'll, um, we'll, we'll be able to talk about some of those other projects next time we meet. Yeah, definitely. And thank you so much for spreading your message here on my, I'm so honored that you chose to, to be here with me today. Um, and thank you for sharing your love and light. It's beautiful to connect with you. It's, it's, this is something I do because this is my favorite thing is to connect with such beautiful, beautiful souls and to continue to, um, yes, to spread such beautiful messages. And I think what you're doing is incredible. Um, and I love the message about, um, you know, treating people with, with um, tenderness and kindness and treating all people with dignity and respect and kindness and love is just the message that's important. So thank you again, Rob, again, I'm going to put the link to your book below, but I'm also just going to show it one more time. Quarks of light, it will probably come up backwards. But again, I really truly enjoyed this book, beautifully written, beautiful messages. And I got mine on Amazon. Um, if there are other places you, you know, it's not on Audible yet, right? It's not on Audible yet, but it's on Apple Books. It's on. It's online with all of the the booksellers. You can get it anywhere now. Fantastic. Uh, and there'll be a hard there'll be a hardcover coming out, and I think uh, about three weeks. Wonderful. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, so. And it's this book is doing very well. So um, go and get it. Thank you again, Rob. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Sharon. Delightful conversation.